welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. We previously studied the lives of six Old Testament people who faithfully followed God with the limited revelation they had, experiencing what we called glimpses of God's grace because the fullness of that grace in Jesus Christ was yet to come. They were in effect walking in the shadows, believing in what was to come, though they didn't see or understand it completely. And then when the time was just right, Christ came into the world, God in the flesh, full of grace and truth. So now we're going to look at the lives of six people in the New Testament who actually met the Lord face to face, and I believe that what we learn from their encounters with Christ will teach us even more about his love and his grace for us. We're going to begin today with Nicodemus, a man who had a very challenging conversation with Christ. The account is in chapter 3 of John's Gospel. We get to know Nicodemus in the very first verse. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. The first thing we learn about him is that he was a Pharisee, which quite literally means a separated one. We also learn that he was a member of the ruling council, so he was a figure of some reputation and authority among the Jews in Jerusalem. The Pharisees were known for their devotion to the scriptures, and they were recognized as the greatest teachers in Israel. And in their fervor to get things right, they'd added many rules to the Mosaic law. In fact, when Nicodemus became a Pharisee, he would have had to swear an oath before witnesses that he would keep every part of the law of Moses, as well as the 600 or so other rules the Pharisees had added to God's word. Unfortunately, focusing on their own efforts to please God filled many of them with a sense of pride and self-importance, and Jesus strongly condemned their hypocrisy. That being said, it would be unfair to paint all Pharisees with the same brush. Some of them were genuinely seeking God, and it seems that Nicodemus was one of those. For when Jesus came to the temple in Jerusalem, Nicodemus asked to meet with him privately. Verse 2 tells us, He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. The fact that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night may be surprising, but in those days it was often the custom to seek out a teacher at night so you had a time of extended discussion without the fear of being interrupted. However, from what Nicodemus says, it does seem that he was coming to Jesus in secret. And notice he says, Rabbi, we know. I think that Nicodemus was there on behalf of others on the council to find out just who Jesus was. Could he be the Messiah they'd been waiting for? 
This was early in Christ's ministry, but it had already become very plain to the religious leaders that there was something extraordinary about Jesus. Nicodemus calls him rabbi, acknowledging that he was a recognized teacher with his own followers. Nicodemus also admitted that Jesus was able to perform miracles, confirming that no one could do so if God were not with him. But Jesus' reply in verse 3 really turned everything upside down for Nicodemus. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus went right to the heart of the matter. He knew that if Nicodemus really wanted to understand who the Messiah was, he first needed to understand what Jesus had come to do. This proud, educated Pharisee first needed to understand that he needed a saviour and that it was impossible for him to make himself right with God by his own self-effort. Faultless obedience to the law was an impossible burden to carry, and that was the only way to God that Nicodemus knew. No wonder he was confused when Jesus began to talk about being born again. Nicodemus knew there was nothing a person could do to enter into their mother's womb a second time, and that really was the point. Nicodemus was so sure that he was responsible for his own salvation, and Jesus said, no, you can't make it happen. It has to happen to you. You have to be born from above by the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand that there is no way a person can affect the type of change in their heart that God requires. That kind of radical transformation was something only God himself could accomplish. Sensing Nicodemus's confusion, Jesus went on to explain, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. There are different ways of looking at what Jesus said here. In saying that we need to be born of water and the Spirit, some scholars say Jesus is encouraging Nicodemus to see beyond physical birth to the spiritual birth we need to experience and truly understand God's kingdom. In that case, being born of water would refer to a woman's water breaking as she is about to give birth. But I also want you to consider something else. Being a Pharisee, Nicodemus was familiar with the whole idea of ritual baths. There was row upon row of them outside the temple for people to use before entering. When a Gentile converted to Judaism, they would undergo this ritual washing in order to be born again, if you will, as a Jew. But even Jews frequently used these baths to symbolically purify themselves from all unrighteousness, giving them a fresh start with God. But in saying what he did, 
Jesus revealed that mere water wasn't sufficient to cleanse the soul. For a person to have a fresh start with God, they needed to be born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew that many of the religious leaders were struggling to come to terms with what God was doing through him. He knew how threatened they felt and how they worried about how his ministry might affect their own standing in the community. What they perhaps did not realize was that what God was about to do could not be stopped. And so Jesus used the wind as an example, gently saying to Nicodemus, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? In effect, Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand that only the Holy Spirit could bring men into God's kingdom and that no one can stop his work. Think about the wind for a moment. We cannot see it, but we can feel its effects. We can shut ourselves off from the wind by sheltering from it or by closing the window, but we can't stop the wind from blowing. And the religious leaders could no more stop what God was doing through Jesus than they could stop the wind. As a teacher, Nicodemus was highly esteemed in the eyes of men, but he didn't know everything. I can't help but imagine the wonder on Nicodemus's face as he struggled to make sense of all that Jesus was saying. But I think in this we learn something remarkable about God, in that grace receives us as we are. Jesus was not put off by his inability to understand. He isn't put off by our tentative questioning in the middle of the night either. He will receive us just as we are, and if we seek him, he will never turn us away but he will also lead us to the real issues that we need to face. Like Nicodemus, there are times we struggle to accept God's word, but Jesus wants us to understand that we do need to accept his authority. And so he continued in verse 11, Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. In the Old Testament, God had promised to send a deliverer known as the Messiah. The prophet Daniel revealed him by the title, the Son of Man. He would be the anointed leader of God's people. And in fact, the name Messiah means anointed one in Hebrew. It becomes Christos when translated into Greek and Christ in English. Many Jews mistakenly imagined that this promised one of God would be a political leader who would free them from Roman oppression. 
But God's plan was slightly different than man's. The Messiah would set people free, but from the power of sin, and he would rule over a heavenly kingdom. As Jesus began to reveal both himself and his mission as the long-awaited Messiah to Nicodemus, he began to speak to the speechless teacher in a way that he would most certainly be able to understand, declaring in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Though we might wonder what Jesus meant when he referred to the serpent in the wilderness, we shall soon see that by grace, Christ spoke to Nicodemus in a way that he could truly understand. As an avid student of the writing of Moses, Nicodemus would have been very familiar with this particular story from Scripture. We need to look at Numbers 21 verses 4 to 9 in the Old Testament for Jesus' words here to make sense. For this particular event in Israel's history is rich with spiritual symbolism relating directly to what Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand. Numbers 21 verse 4 picks up the story when the people of Israel, recently delivered from Egypt, were still wandering in the wilderness. They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Israel grew impatient as they followed God, imagining that somehow a life of slavery had been preferable to a life of freedom. God had provided all the food they could eat, with manna falling down from the sky and birds that flew into the camp each night. He'd also miraculously given them water to drink, and yet they hated his provision. They longed to go back to the slavery that he'd delivered them from. Interestingly, the symbol of the Egyptian pharaohs was a snake, and so it was no coincidence that God sent snakes among them to remind them of how painful their life of bondage had been. The bite of these serpents was deadly, just like sin, its wages were death. More than that, no remedy for the serpent's bite could be found within the realm of men. People were powerless to counteract its deadly effects. And so, confessing their sin, the people went to Moses, asking him to pray for them so that the Lord would take the snakes away. Now, God didn't take the serpents away, but he did provide the Israelites a remedy. 
the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. There are several things we need to emphasize before we get to the meaning of this. The remedy for the serpent's poison was given by God. It was not devised by man. The serpent was made of bronze, a metal that was associated with God's judgment in Scripture. So this was a one-time symbol of judgment. No other version of the snake was ever made. There was one and only one. To be healed was simple enough, but it was personal. No one else could look at the bronze serpent for you. This was something each person had to do for themselves. It was the only remedy. There was no self-help available that could cure the disease. Life would be given by an act of faith alone. So what was the message Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand from this illustration in Israel's history? Well, let's go back and look at John chapter 3 verse 4 again. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand that the story of the serpent in the wilderness foreshadowed Christ and his death on the cross as the payment for our sin. Jesus was going to be lifted high on the cross so that those who were dying spiritually might look to him and live. He would always and forever be the only way of salvation, but each person must respond for themselves in a personal act of faith. Nicodemus may have secretly come to Christ under the cover of darkness, seeking what he thought he needed to know about the Messiah, but his true need was far greater than he ever imagined. He needed new life. He needed to be born again, to start over, and he would have to look to Jesus as his saviour for that to happen. The Messiah Nicodemus looked for was far more than a political ruler. He had come to be a sinless substitute for mankind's sin. The religious law that Nicodemus loved and so carefully followed could never bring a person into the new life that God desired. You know, as Paul would later say in Galatians 3.24, the law was merely our tutor, to bring us to Christ, for we are justified by faith. Jesus is able to do what the law could never do. By his sacrifice, we can be born again spiritually, and whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
Have you personally looked in faith to Christ's death on the cross as the only way you can survive the deadly poison of sin? For all of us who have looked, it has the power to transform us and give us new life. The conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus that night seemed to end without any real conclusion. But I want us to think about the transformation we see in Nicodemus's life after that night. We next see him in John chapter 7. Jesus had returned to Jerusalem for another religious holiday, and by this time, his popularity was growing. He continued to make claims about himself and God that no one else would ever dare to do. And what was even more troubling to the religious leaders, Jesus was able to back up what he said with miraculous works. More and more people were talking about him, and so the Sanhedrin eventually sent out members of the temple guard to arrest Jesus and bring him before them. In John chapter 7 verse 45 onwards, we learn that these officers returned to the Sanhedrin empty-handed, confessing that they had not arrested Jesus because no one ever spoke the way this man does. This infuriated the Pharisees, but these officers knew that Jesus was like no other. And though the ordinary people had begun to see Christ for who he was, the religious leaders had not. They were certain that no educated person had believed in Jesus, but they were wrong. For by this time, there were several members of the ruling council who'd begun to change their minds in Christ's favor. Among them was Nicodemus, who urged the other members of the ruling council to listen to Christ for themselves. Of course, they were not willing to do that. Their minds were made up, and they even turned on Nicodemus at that point arrogantly implying that he was a fool who didn't know what he was talking about. I think this points, though, to a change in Nicodemus, that he had begun to understand what Jesus had said to him, and he was willing to publicly ally himself, at least to some degree, with Christ, even though that might have consequences for his own future in society. Finally, at Christ's crucifixion in John 19, we realize that Nicodemus and his friend Joseph of Arimathea had in fact become followers of Jesus. Verse 38 of John 19 reveals that Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. 
Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Mark 15 verse 43 confirms that Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. You know, I think it's easy for us to miss just what an incredible act of bravery that was. With no thought for themselves or what it would mean for their positions in society and on the ruling council, these two men publicly identified themselves with Christ at his death. Though part of the Sanhedrin, they had not agreed to send Jesus to his death. And it seems that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had not only finally understood the words that Jesus had spoken to Nicodemus, that the Son of Man must be lifted up like the bronze serpent in the wilderness so that men might be saved, they had come to believe it for themselves. How do we know that they understood? Well, Matthew 27 verse 60 tells us that the tomb in which they laid Jesus was actually Joseph of Arimathea's own tomb. Yet it would have been very unusual for a wealthy person to purchase a tomb for themselves outside of Jerusalem's walls and so close to a major execution site. I believe that that tells us that these two men may have prepared ahead for what they knew was sure to happen. But there's another reason I say this. Do you see there in John 19 verse 39 that Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Such a large amount of embalming spices would have been impossible to organize quickly, which also seems to show that they had made special preparation ahead of time. What these two men did that day fulfilled the promise of God in Isaiah 53 verse 9 that his suffering servant, Jesus, would be assigned a grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death. Jesus died between two thieves, the wicked, and yet at his death he was buried in the unused tomb of a rich man. The selfless dedication of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea truly touches my heart. It took place right in the middle of the Passover celebrations. And in fact, part of the urgency surrounding their request for the body was because the Sabbath would begin at sunset. And so Jesus's body had to be buried quickly. However, Touching the dead made a person unclean, and it stopped them from participating in religious rituals. These two men were trained Pharisees, and this act would have gone against every fiber of their training. Yet we see them willingly put aside all of the strict legalism of their past to openly follow Christ, even if it made them unclean at Passover according to the law of Moses. They chose to hold nothing back in their service of the Lord, fully aware of what that meant for their status 
within the community that they'd been part of for so long. Nicodemus's encounter with Christ and the words that Jesus said to him that night changed both him and his friend Joseph forever. The same truth they experienced can change us too, as we realize that God's grace receives us just as we are. It speaks truth to us in a way that we can understand, but grace is personal. It requires our response, our personal faith in Christ's sacrifice. The transformation grace brings will draw us to worship and serve God with no thought for ourselves, just as it did Nicodemus. My prayer is that you encounter the God of all grace today, that you know him as your personal saviour, and that you lovingly follow him no matter the cost. May God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.